We read the Holy Scriptures this morning in John chapter 20. There are a number of passages in Scripture which speak about the keys of the kingdom from one perspective or another. This passage speaks of it, especially in verse 23, as we will see in the sermon. Let's begin reading John 20, verse 19, to the end of the chapter. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, even as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. We read God's word that far. Let's consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31 concerning the keys of the kingdom. Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church, by these two the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, All their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. 
And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are not converted, unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them, both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you may recall, last Sunday morning, we considered Lord's Day 30. Just take a look back at Lord's Day 30 a moment, and you will recall that we learned that the elders have a duty to exclude impenitent sinners from the Lord's Supper by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they show amendment of life. That was back in Lord's Day 30. And now there's a natural question that follows after that. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? As you can see, that question naturally follows from Lord's Day 30. And that matter of who and who may not be allowed to the Lord's Supper. The keys of the kingdom of heaven is the topic of this sermon. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Where do we get that idea? That idea comes from Matthew chapter 16, primarily. If you remember when the apostle Peter made that great confession to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. And Jesus answered and said to Peter, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. That's where we find the reference to these keys of the kingdom of heaven. Not one key, but keys of the kingdom of heaven. But what are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, sometime later after Jesus died and rose from the dead, we read in John chapter 20 that story of when Jesus appeared to his disciples in a room in Jerusalem And we read there that when he appeared the first time to ten of those disciples, he said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. 
he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. And then he said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now I'm going to explain that later in the sermon. What does that mean? But right now I just point out there too, Jesus is showing us what the keys of the kingdom of heaven do. They forgive sins and they retain sins. They open and they shut. They bind and they loosen. They are keys. The keys of the kingdom belong to Jesus himself. They are his keys. They don't belong to anyone else. Really, they are God's keys. And God has given the keys to Jesus. And we find that clearly taught in Revelation 3, verse 7, where Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. In that passage, Jesus teaches us, he has these keys. These are his keys. He is the one turning the keys, opening and shutting. But in Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, I give the keys to you. And we find in the other scriptures, like in the one we read in John 20, he gives the keys not only to Peter, as the Roman Catholic Church believes. They believe that the Pope, the successor of Peter, is the only one who really holds the keys. No, he gave the keys to Peter and the other apostles, and in them he gave the keys to the elders and pastors of the church throughout the New Testament. These keys are obviously spiritual keys, not physical. It's not a physical power, but a spiritual power to open and shut the doors to a spiritual kingdom. What we're going to see in the third point of the sermon regarding the significance of these keys is that these two keys are also two of the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. And what are these two keys? The Catechism teaches us the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline. Let's consider the keys of the kingdom. First of all, let's look at the key of preaching. Secondly, the key of discipline. Finally, what's the significance of these keys? The Catechism teaches us that the first key of the kingdom, the chief and primary key, is the preaching of the Holy Gospel. How do we know that? How did the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism know that the preaching of the Gospel is the first key of the kingdom? After all, Jesus did not tell Peter what those keys were. He just said, I give you the keys. But if we search the rest of Scripture it becomes clearer and clearer that one of these keys is and must be the preaching of the Holy Gospel. How do we know that? Well, we know that because these are obviously spiritual keys that open and shut the gates of a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is nothing less than paradise, nothing less than salvation, nothing less than eternal life with God in heaven and in the new creation. 
after Christ's return. And therefore, to be shut outside of that kingdom is to be bound and to be excluded into God's prison. It is to be cast into God's prison, chained up in the darkness for all eternity. What is the key that opens and shuts to that kingdom, to that salvation? How is one saved? How does one inherit eternal life? The scriptures teach us that too. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace are you saved through faith. Well then, how is faith worked in a person? Faith is worked by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. And therefore we see that it is by faith that we are saved, and it is by the preaching of the Gospel that we receive faith. The preaching of the Gospel is one of the keys that opens and shuts the gates of the kingdom of heaven. The preaching of the Gospel not only opens, but it shuts. We know that from experience, and we know that from Scripture as well. Whenever the preaching of the gospel goes forth, there is always a twofold response. There is always the response of faith. There are those who believe in Jesus Christ who is preached. But there are also those who refuse to believe, whose hearts are hardened against that preaching, who reject that preaching and hate that preaching and despise the Christ who is preached. So we see how the preaching is a tool, a spiritual power that works faith in some and hardens the hearts of others. Jesus really indicates that the preaching is one of the keys. For example, in Matthew 10, when he sent his disciples on their first mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, And he told them to preach the gospel, to preach that the kingdom of heaven is coming and has come. And Jesus warned them that when you preach, there will not only be those who receive the gospel, but there will be those who hate it, who despise it, who try to stone you, who try to cast you out, who persecute you. Then again in Mark chapter 16, when he sent his disciples on the great mission to the whole world, It was, again, a mission to preach the gospel of salvation. And Jesus told them at that time, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be damned. Jesus always teaches that there's a twofold response to the preaching of the gospel because the preaching is a key of the kingdom that opens and shuts. How does the preaching of the gospel do that? That's the question of the catechism. How does the preaching do that? How is it a key that opens and shuts the doors of the kingdom? You have to think of the kingdom of God like this fortress city, like Jerusalem, like Zion, a walled city. It's the city of God, and it has gates, and those gates can be locked shut, and they can be unlocked and opened. And the preaching of the gospel is what does that. How? Thus, the Catechism says, when the preacher actually preaches the gospel, then it functions as a key, always. 
So when the preacher, first of all, declares to his audience, whether right here in the congregation or whether out there in the world, on a mission field, wherever that may be, when the preacher declares to his audience that they are sinners, that he is also a sinner, that we are sinners who have broken all God's commandments, that we have grossly broken all of his commandments, that we have fallen in our first father, Adam, and we have been born with a depraved, corrupt, perverse nature. And out of that perverse nature, we walk in sin, we break God's commandments, and all that you are worthy of and all that I am worthy of is to become the objects of God's wrath, to come under his everlasting condemnation. The preacher declares that to his audience. But in the second place, he declares to them the good news that God in his love has sent his only begotten son into the world. Born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Son of God in our flesh has given his own life on the cross, and shed his own precious blood on that cross to take away the sins of many, to take away the sins of all his sheep whom God has given to him. And there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, because God has raised him up from the dead. He appeared to many, to his disciples and to others. He's risen, he lives, and there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And in the third place, when that preacher then calls his audience, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sinful way. Turn from your unbelief. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Embrace him. Trust in him because there is no forgiveness apart from Christ. Come to Christ and believe in him. And then fourthly, when the minister declares the promise of the gospel that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but will receive everlasting life through faith in him. And when he preaches the warning that whosoever will not believe in Jesus Christ will perish, will die everlastingly under the wrath of God because of his sins and unbelief. When the preacher does that, That preaching is a key of the kingdom that opens and shuts the gates of Jerusalem. I do that this morning. I declared that to you, and I do declare that to you. I declare to you the promise of the gospel. I declare to all and every believer here, every one of you who is a believer, I declare to you that whenever you receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, whenever you personally receive this promise of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, you receive it by true faith. In that blessed moment, God forgives all your sins. God declares to you, I forgive you, my beloved one. I declare to you, I forgive all your sins that stain your soul and that trouble your contrite heart. I forgive them. I forgive all of them. I blot them out. I remember them no more. I will never remember those sins. 
I forgive you. And I also declare this morning to any who might not be a believer who is sitting here this morning that you stand exposed in your unbelief to the wrath and judgment of God as long as you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. I declare that to you. I warn you. You stand exposed to the everlasting wrath of God. When I preach that promise and that warning this morning, Christ uses that preaching as a key. And through that preaching, he softens the hearts of those for whom he died on the cross. He softens our hearts so that we believe in him and embrace him. And in that way, then, he is throwing open the gates of the kingdom to us so that by faith we enter and we enjoy the blessedness of forgiveness. We enter by faith and we catch a glimpse already in this life of that glorious, marvelous, beautiful kingdom of heaven. And our hearts are filled with hope for heaven, for everlasting life, the holy city where the streets are paved with gold, where we will dwell with God through Christ for all eternity. And through that same preaching, God leaves others who harden their hearts. He leaves them in their unbelief. He hardens their hearts so that they don't believe. But they rage against Christ. And so that same preaching, the very same preaching, closes the gates to them and locks it shut and leaves them in the darkness outside. The preaching of the gospel is a key of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus himself is the one who turns that key. But he turns that key through all lawfully ordained ministers that he gives, calls, and sends into his church. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his apostles in that room, and he said to them, Just as my Father has sent me into the world, I send you into the world. He sent them into the world. They were officially ordained ministers sent to preach the gospel. And then he said, Receive the Holy Ghost. He breathed on them the Holy Ghost. He qualified them and prepared them for that work. And then he said to them, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. What does that mean? John 20, verse 23. What does that mean? Was Jesus giving to the apostles the power to grant or withhold forgiveness toward anyone who sinned against them personally? Does Jesus give that to ministers? Does he give ministers the power and authority to grant or withhold forgiveness to people who have sinned against him personally? No, that's not what he's talking about. In fact, Jesus gives the right and the duty of forgiveness to all Christians. Men and women, young and old, he gives to all of us 
the calling to forgive those who sin against us. When they humbly ask us for forgiveness. Well then, was Jesus giving to them then the power to grant or withhold forgiveness according to their own whim and fancy, according to their own desires, according to their own judgment? Was he giving to them the inherent power and right to forgive or not to forgive people who have sinned against God? The Roman Catholic Church believes something like that, that all of the, the Pope, the cardinals, bishops, and priests, they have been given this inherent right and power to forgive or to retain forgiveness. They have that in themselves. It's not what Jesus is saying either. And just imagine how that kind of power could be abused and has been abused to the great, great detriment of the spiritual lives of many. No, when Jesus said these words, what he was giving to his apostles and to all ministers of the gospel was the ability and right to preach the gospel of forgiveness and to declare to all believers, God forgives your sins. And to all unbelievers, God does not forgive your sins. That's the right that God is giving. Jesus is giving to preachers in the text. That's a great power. But it's not a power that resides in the preacher himself. It's Jesus' power that he gives to preachers and exercises through them. When preachers declare to people, your sins are forgiven, you who believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven. God forgives you. Not me. God forgives you. Jesus turns that key to that preaching and gives the blessed forgiveness. And he also locks it against those who refuse to believe. There's a second key of the kingdom. After all, Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys. There's not one key, but there's more than one. The catechism says there are two. What is the other key of the kingdom? The catechism teaches us that it is Christian discipline. Now, how do we know that discipline is one of the keys? Jesus did not say that, did he, to Peter? Well, when we look at the rest of Scripture, we can easily conclude that the catechism is correct. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Two chapters later, Matthew 18, Jesus said not just to Peter, but to all the disciples, the procedure for Christian discipline. And at the conclusion of laying down that procedure of discipline, Jesus said to them, in verse 18 of Matthew 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Was not Jesus then teaching them that this discipline is one of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? That's exactly what he is teaching. Not only the preaching of the gospel, but also the exercise of discipline by the elders of the church is a key that opens and shuts the gates of the kingdom. Discipline opens the gates of the kingdom to repentant believers and shuts the gates of the kingdom to impenitent unbelievers. Discipline does that. How? The Catechism teaches us in a good amount of detail how that takes place, how discipline works as a key, how it is supposed to work. Discipline can be abused and has been abused by church leaders in the past, either by means of exercising that power to a tyrannical and extreme measure or not exercising it at all. There's the abuse and there's the misuse or disuse of discipline. So there is a proper exercise of Christian discipline that must be followed. And what is that proper method? The Catechism teaches us that discipline opens and shuts the kingdom when, according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life. That first. Start there. Because Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, first you go to your brother privately and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the first step. This implies that the brother is someone who carries the name Christian. He's a member of the church, or he's a fellow Christian, a fellow professing believer, but he is maintaining doctrines or practices inconsistent with the name of Christian. He says he's a Christian, but he's not living or confessing like a Christian should. It could be that he's maintaining practices inconsistent with the name of Christian. Maybe he's carrying on an adulterous relationship, an affair, extramarital, with some woman who is not his wife or with some man who is not her husband. Nobody knows about this except that brother. Or maybe the brother or sister is maintaining a doctrine that is inconsistent with Christian doctrine. Maybe this person is denying that Jesus is God. Maybe he's denying that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity. Maybe he's denying that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Or maybe he's denying some other cardinal truth of the Christian faith. Or it could be, as Jesus really is saying in Matthew 18, that that brother or sister sinned against you. That brother or sister hurt you. They slandered you. They lied about you. They mistreated you. Then Jesus says, the first thing you do is not to go to the elders, but you go to that person privately. And you tell him his fault between yourself and him alone. You admonish him. 
It must be kept private when the sin is private. Now, the Reformed Fathers, going back hundreds of years, did recognize that there are some exceptions to that. One of the exceptions that the Dutch Reformed Fathers recognized was what they called the seduction of souls and what today might go by the name of sexual abuse and predation. That's a secret and private sin. Probably very few people, if anyone, knows about it. But we ought not to require of those who have been sexually abused in private that they go to their abuser and confront him face to face because it is a private, secret sin. You might think that that's the proper thing to do. But as I pointed out, already hundreds of years ago, the Reformed Fathers considered the seduction of souls to be one of those kinds of secret sins that in its very nature is not a secret sin, but public. It's it's to be considered a gross public sin for various reasons, one of which is that such a sin is a transgression of the law of the land, which could and very well will become public, and that person may very well go to jail for that sin, and for other reasons as well. But it Apart from a few exceptions, the rule is when there is a sin committed in private, a secret sin that nobody else knows about, you go to the brother in private first. You don't spread it. You don't go right to the elders. You go in private to the brother. That's very hard for us to do, isn't it? Very hard. It requires tremendous humility, tremendous courage, And tremendous love for that brother to do it. Tremendous. We don't like confrontation. It requires humility because whenever we go to confront someone about their sin, Jesus teaches us we must always first pull the beam out of our own eyes before we try to pull the speck out of our brother's eyes. So there must be humility in that approach. There must be courage because we know when we go to the brother, he might not like what we're going to say. He might not agree with us. He might not listen to us. He might even countercharge and counterattack us. And it requires, therefore, tremendous love, doesn't it? When we know that brother is walking in a terrible sin. But we love him. We love her. We know that people who walk impenitently in that sin will perish. And in love, therefore, we are motivated to do the hard thing. And when we do that, the way to do that is with the Bible in your hand. Let me emphasize that. Don't go to the brother or sister to tell them their sin without a Bible in your hand. Take the Bible in your hand and be prepared and know what you're going to say. And open up that Bible in humility and love for that brother and show him specifically where the Bible condemns what he's doing or what he's teaching and confessing or saying. That's the way to do admonition. Really the only way. By means of the word of God. Now, Jesus says that if that brother refuses to hear, he will not listen to you, he will not confess and renounce his sin, then you go with two or three witnesses. 
Because the Bible teaches that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Now it's just not just your word against his word. But now there are two or three witnesses, not witnesses of the sin that the brother committed, but witnesses of what he's going to say when you confront him. Witnesses of that. And the three of you or the four of you now go to the brother again and do the very same thing. Bring the scripture with love and humility. Show him, brother, you're going wrong. You're doing wrong here. We love you. We care about you. You can't live like that. And now the point here is that as a key of the kingdom of heaven, if the brother hears you, he listens to what you say. He's sorry. He turns and repents, forsakes his sinful way, and he asks for you to help him. What is that? That repentance is the fruit of the work of Jesus Christ turning his key, opening the gates of his kingdom, giving to that brother once again the blessedness and joy of life in the kingdom, which is only in the way of repentance. But that brother may not listen to you. He may not hear you. He may reject your admonition. Then what? Then Jesus says, you tell it to the church. And the Catechism teaches us that refers to those who are appointed in the church for this work. In other words, the elders and the pastors of the church. You tell it to the elders, to the consistory. You tell them what you have done, the work that you have already done with the brother, and you tell them. And that's not a betrayal now of the brother, by exposing his sin to the consistory. That's not a betrayal. That's love. And that takes great courage to do. And then what do the elders do? Do they excommunicate him right then and there? Absolutely not. The elders continue that work. They continue it because it is always motivated by love and mercy and the desire for the repentance of the sinner. So the elders continue the same procedure with humility, with courage, with love, with the scriptures. They meet with the brother, a committee of two elders. Meet with the brother. Meet with the sister. Tell them the fault. Show them from scripture. And the elders must take such such a thing very seriously when two or three or four people come to the elders and say, this is what we've done. There the elders have before them a credible Accusation, because it was established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. It's credible. The elders must take that and go with it and work with the brother and continue the work of admonition. The work of discipline can take a long time. It can take years. Sometimes elders become impatient with the sinning brother or sister. Sometimes elders and pastors have to learn patience and have compassion with the brother or sister. But sometimes elders and pastors are too timid and too afraid of confronting and rebuking. They avoid the situation and they have to be reminded to get to work and to be busy. 
There's always those dangers on both sides. To get right to excommunication or to just allow it to go on and on for year after year. Neither of those is right. Elders and pastors, therefore, have to be praying constantly in fervent prayer that they are doing the right thing in the right way. What happens then if the sinning brother hears the elders? He hears them. I hear you. I hear what you're saying to me. I was wrong. You're right. I was wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm so wretched for what I've done. And then the elders declare to him, and brother, God forgives your sins. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The elders declare to the repentant sinner, God forgives your sins. And to the impenitent sinner, the elders warn, brother, God will not forgive your sins. Repent of your sins. What happens then if the brother doesn't listen to the elders either? Then the elders must proceed. They must suspend him from the use of the sacraments. The Catechism says, if they despise their admonition, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and thereby excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. Already when they are suspended from the sacraments, and that begins as a silent censure. The congregation doesn't know about it yet. But he is censured, suspended from the Lord's Supper. Already there, he is being excluded from the kingdom of heaven because of his impenitence. After that, the the consistory must make the first announcement to the congregation. An announcement without the name of the person. An announcement that there is a member of our church who is under discipline for this or that sin, against this or that commandment. And if he continues in impenitence, maybe now we're talking many months or even years into the case, finally the elders may have to take it to classes. Because no consistory can excommunicate someone without the advice of classes. Do you see the safety there of the Reformed Church order? No consistory can depose a minister on its own or excommunicate a person on its own. They have to go to classes. They have to get the advice of the other elders and and ministers from the other churches. And then the consistory will present their case to the classes. This is what's been going on. And the classes will say either, you haven't done your work yet, go back and keep working with them. Or the classes will say, you've done your work well, we approve, you may proceed. And the classist has done both throughout history. If that brother or sister then continues at that point in his stubborn sin, consistory will have to move to the third announcement. The first announcement, no name. The second announcement, the name is mentioned of the individual and we are called to pray for him or her. The third announcement is that the congregation is told on this or that date, this member will be excommunicated from the church. 
They will be excluded from all of the rights and privileges of this congregation. And unless they repent of their sin and show amendment of life, they are excluded from the kingdom of God itself. That's Christian discipline. A long, careful process. Christ works through it. He opens the doors of his kingdom through discipline. Because through discipline, he brings his people to repentance. And he closes the gates of the kingdom because through that same discipline, he hardens the hearts of the ungodly. Those are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Very significant, these keys are. Very significant for the church here below on earth. Significant because these two keys are also two of the marks of the true church in the world. The third mark is the proper administration of the sacraments. That makes sense. The true church is the church where Christ is present. Christ is there. He is present. He is working. He is preaching. He is disciplining us. He is comforting us, caring for us. That's the church. In Matthew 18, when Jesus lays out the procedure of discipline, and then he says, whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed, what does he go on to say after that? Do you remember? He says, and wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's where I am. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name. And when he says two or three, my understanding of that is he's referring primarily to two or three office bearers. Where there are two or three faithful office bearers and therefore also a congregation with those office bearers of whatever size, I'm there, Jesus says. I'm there in the midst of you. That's a true church of Christ. The keys of the kingdom are used and exercised properly there. Now, we have a duty to join a true church of Jesus Christ. All of us does as Christians. We may not separate ourselves from the church and live outside of the church. Some try to do that, and they claim to be Christians, but they say they don't need the church. That's an anomaly. Or rather, it's a, it's a non-truth. It's not possible. Christians love the church. They love Jesus, and Jesus is in the church. So Christians all have this duty and this, this responsibility to join a true church. They need to be where Jesus is, and that's what they want, to be in a true church. Christians, therefore, must never take their church membership lightly. We must join a church in a denomination from the conviction that Christ is present in that church with his keys. And we must never leave a church where Christ is present with his keys, a faithful church, unless we have very, very good reasons. And then, 
only to move to another congregation within the same denomination, but to leave one's church and denomination into another church in another denomination, one must not do that unless one is persuaded that his own denomination is no longer a faithful one. His own denomination is no longer a place where Christ is present, fully and faithfully turning the keys. We must always remember that there is no perfect church on earth. And when we see problems in our own denomination, we don't immediately leave. But we work toward making right the wrongs. We work toward reforming what is deformed first. The great reformers did that too. And we must remember too, there is a wide range of true churches in the world today. We must never claim that our church is the only true church or even that our denomination is the only true denomination. We must never say that. That's not true. But at the same time, it does matter which church you are a member of. It does matter. It is important. It's a very significant thing. How do we decide which church we must be a member of? Some people say, just join the church where you feel the most comfortable. Or join a church where you like the programs. They have good programs for this or that. Or the church where there's the most excitement and you feel that there's a lot of life in that church. Well, those things may have some degree of importance or other, but those are not the most important factors. Some make their decision based on those factors. Or my spouse goes to this church, or my boyfriend or girlfriend goes to that church, and that's why I'm going to go to that church. That's not the ultimate reason to make that decision. How do we decide? We have to ask ourselves, where is Christ present most faithfully and fully with his keys? We must ask ourselves, what church has the faithful preaching of the holy gospel of Jesus Christ? What church has preaching that is true preaching? Where can I be in a church that the preaching is not giving me lies and heresies every Sunday? Where the preaching is not giving me mere shallow stories or just the opinions and suggestions of the pastor or some advice for happy and healthy living. There's all kinds of preaching like that, as I've said before. We know that. Many, many churches are full of that kind of preaching. Then there are churches which are more conservative, more reformed, Presbyterian, faithful. They're preaching the truth. And then among those churches, we have to ask ourselves, which church or denomination do I believe in my heart is preaching the truth of the scriptures most faithfully? In other words, preaching Jesus Christ as the way to the Father and that there is no other Savior apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved but the name of Christ. And it's only by faith in Christ, by grace alone, in Christ alone that I am justified only in Christ. 
That's what I need to hear. That's the preaching I need to look for. Where do I find preaching that doesn't minimize sin, doesn't laugh sin off, but calls me to repent of my sins, shows me the wretchedness of sin, and calls me to trust in Christ for salvation from my sin? Where can I find preaching that also directs me in the Christian life that I must live? In gratitude to God for all of his salvation. Where can I find a church where there is Christian discipline? Is there discipline? Is there accountability in my church? Or can anyone be a member of this church who wants to be, no matter what kind of life he is living, no matter what condition of life, anybody can come to the Lord's table. It doesn't matter if he's divorced, remarried, homosexual. It doesn't matter what lifestyle he lives. Is that the kind of church this is? then there's no discipline. Then everybody can come and go as he pleases. Is there discipline? Is Jesus in this church with his keys? Those are the questions we have to ask. And mothers and fathers, grandfathers and grandmothers, those, that's the guidance we have to give to our children too. I remember I was taught this when I was a child, as I was growing up. I heard it many times from ministers, from fathers, parents, grandparents. You don't decide which church to be a member of based on what feels good. What is a place where you feel comfortable. You have to look for the marks, the marks of the true church. To teach that to our children very important. And isn't that the desire of the Christian too? The desire of the Christian is to be where Christ is and be a member of that church because we know that there the gates of the kingdom are going to be open to us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We're not going to go there and be starved to death. We're going to go there And we're going to hear the preaching that throws open the gates of the kingdom and we're going to see the glories of heaven. The blessedness of forgiveness. We want to be in a church where there's discipline, don't we? We don't want to be in a church, do we, where there's no discipline? Do we really want that? If you're in a church where there's no discipline, there's no accountability. You live however you want. Is that what you really want, to live however you want? No, the Christian doesn't want that. We long for that accountability. We long for that oversight. We want our elders to hold us accountable to walk in the straight and narrow way because we want to walk on that way. We know the dangers around us. The church is our refuge. The elders are our under-shepherds who care for our souls. We know that's where we want and need to be. I say it's very significant and important. It's important, young people, young couples, it's important for us as we raise our families, our desire is that God will continue his covenant with us and our children after us in our generations. But if we despise his church, if 
We undervalue, devalue what is most important in life. God may very well cut off our generations after us. There's a warning there. Do we see that happening all around us? Look at the church world. All of us here this morning know that. All of us here. We know that the church world around us is dismal. Even many Reformed denominations. There's no pure preaching there. There's no Christian discipline there. Or very little. So let us be thankful then for the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Thankful for them. And may God continue to use them here in our congregation as well. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the keys of the kingdom. We confess that we are undeserving to have this kingdom opened up to us and to our children and grandchildren. And we are thankful for thy mercy and grace. We pray that thou would grant unto us an understanding and an appreciation of the significance of these matters. We pray for our children and young people, that thou would also guide them, that they might understand the importance of the church and the weightiness of these decisions of confession of faith and church membership.